following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied to a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing, untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it. He sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead of them followed, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king, our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem, and when he went to the temple courts, he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. One of my childhood dreams, which never came true, was to get to attend one of the 1990s Chicago Bulls championship parades. Uh, There were six of them. I'll repeat that for any LeBron fans in the room. Looking at you, Marcus. Six of them. And they were epic productions. I mean, I I would see the footage and be in awe. The team would be on a float or a series of fire trucks winding their way through downtown Chicago until they got to Grant Park, where the players would give speeches to a sea of more than a million fans. Now, I wanted to be there, not because I was into parades or speeches or big crowds, but because I was obsessed with the ones being celebrated. Maybe NBA parades aren't your thing, but I imagine many of you tune into the Macy's Parade every Thanksgiving. Perhaps some of you were even at a parade yesterday celebrating our country on uh, this Independence Day weekend. But parades are not just modern spectacles. They've been going on for thousands of years. In ancient Roman culture, a military victor, literally a man of triumph, would return to the city, to his city, uh, to shouts of praise. The leader would, or the general, would often be wearing a purple garment and a laurel, leafy wreath, identifying him with the royal and the divine while riding on a golden chariot carried by, you know, pulled along by four stallions. The message was clear. This is a monumental occasion because this is no ordinary man. In our passage this morning, we're going to see a similar ancient spectacle. But the beauty of this one, the striking beauty of this one, is going to shine most not through the similarities with other ancient parades, but through the differences. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Mark's gospel is divided into two halves. The first, chapters 1 to 8, focus mainly on who Jesus is. And the second half, chapters 9 to 16, focus mainly on what he's come to do. But in chapter 11, 
we've reached another pivot point, another turning point in the telling of the story, and that is in Mark's narrative pacing, his pacing as he tells the story. What do I mean by that? Well, chapters 1 to 10 have covered roughly three years in the life of Jesus. But at chapter 11, though we still have six chapters to go, mark the beginning of the end. Jesus doesn't have another year. He doesn't have another month. Chapter 11 marks the beginning of his final week. And as we're going to see this morning and over the next several months, Mark has devoted so much time and attention. Mark, who's often in a hurry, right? He has slowed down and is devoting immense attention to these final seven days because they are the most important week in human history. Here's what I think is the main idea of Mark 11 verses 1 to 11. See and receive the true king for who he is, not who you want him to be. See and receive the true king for who he is, not who you want him to be. We'll think about this in two simple points as we make our way through the story. First, a calculated plan. It's verses 1 to 6, and second, a celebrated king, verses 7 to 11. A calculated plan and a celebrated king. First, a calculated plan. Verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one's ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. The main thing I I think we're meant to see in this opening scene is the meticulous command Jesus is exercising over the situation. Nothing is happenstance. There is a playbook. There is a plan. In the village, he says, in the village, there will be a young donkey, a colt that is tethered to a post and that's never been ridden. And when you, disciples, when you hear the question, uh, what are you doing untying our colt? Simply say, the Lord needs it, but he'll take good care of it and send it right back. A lot of stuff has to go exactly right in order for Jesus's plan to unfold. Verse 4. The disciples went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered, As Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. Let's not miss the fact that the disciples obey Jesus' instructions even when they don't fully understand them. How about you? When you're confronted with a clear command from God's word, do you obey even if you don't fully understand? Or do you make the excuse that because you don't understand, you're not going to obey? Brothers and sisters, beware of this temptation. Beware of this danger. 
Beware of suspending obedience just because you don't know everything God's up to. I mean, if you, just just think about it, okay? If you fully understood all of God's decisions, he wouldn't be God. He would be you. As the writer Flannery O'Connor once put it, a God you fully understood would be less than yourself. You don't even fully understand yourself. So a God you understood would be less than yourself. And a God small enough to be understood is not big enough to be worshipped. And why can we trust all of Christ's commands? Well, well, there's a little hint in the verse. They found a colt outside in the street tied to a doorway. It was exactly as he said it was going to be. It's not like the disciples conveniently passed a donkey along the way. No, Jesus knew what was ahead. The reason, by the way, I'm using the name of Jesus and God interchangeably here is because in Mark 11, what we see at work in the human being, Jesus Christ, is divine foreknowledge. Divine foreknowledge. At many points in the Gospels, Jesus operates out of his human nature. He eats, he tires, he sleeps. He can even be ignorant about the future in his human nature. But here, the curtain of his humanity is pulled back, and we see a glimpse of his omniscience, his all-knowing deity. He knows the beginning from the end, which means his predictions and commands, even about mundane things, even about livestock, are not shots in the dark. As we've already seen in recent weeks, he's approaching Jerusalem not as some stumbling, staggering, helpless victim, unknowing victim, but as the absolute architect of events. 100% man and 100% God. Now, why this plan? Why this particular plan? Why a tethered, unridden, unbroken little donkey? Well, because as the divine architect, Jesus is fulfilling divine prophecy. Turn with me to Genesis 49. Genesis 49, very first book of the Bible, near the end of the first book, Genesis 49. The patriarch Jacob Okay, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac. He's on his deathbed blessing his 12 sons who will become the, the 12 tribes of Israel. Listen to what Jacob promises one specific son and tribe. Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter, that, that is a kingly instrument a royal instrument. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. This doesn't fill out the whole picture, but this means that a day is coming when a kingly figure will emerge from Judah's line and he will in some way have something to do with a tethered, tied-up colt. 
This prophecy in Genesis, as I said, is at the beginning of the Old Testament. Now let's look at the end. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. Near the very end of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. The, the prophet Zechariah is writing to returning Jewish exiles about the coming of their Messiah. And here's what he predicts. 500 years before the coming of Jesus. It was our scripture reading earlier. I'll just read verses 9 and 10. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And five centuries later, in Mark 11, a king from Judah's line is stepping into this prophetic anticipation as a way of saying, I'm here. The one you've been waiting for, though perhaps not looking for. See, even though Israel had access to the scrolls of Genesis and Zechariah, they still couldn't imagine that a baby donkey would actually be, could actually be the mount of their Messiah. I mean, they, they had the scrolls, they had the prophecies, but what they wanted was a war horse, not some pathetic little colt. But Jesus is always giving us what we need, even if it's not what we want. His entrance into Jerusalem is indeed messianic and triumphant, but it doesn't look that way. And the reason is because he's a king unlike any other. He has come not to conquer, but to suffer, not to bring judgment, but to bear it, not to spill his enemy's blood, but to spill his own. I mean, just rewind a moment. Just imagine the night before the triumphal entry. Imagine the disciples just hours before all of this takes place. I mean, think about, they've been walking for days, weeks to get to Jerusalem. But for now, but now in the final stretch, for the final stretch, their master looks at them and says, I'm done walking. I'm not going to walk into the city. I'm going to ride in. Oh man, you can imagine the disciples were starting to pump their fists. They're, they're high-fiving. They're, they're, they're thinking, finally, he's talking like a king. Finally, he's going public. The Romans, armies, better take notice. Let's get him what he deserves. Let's get him the biggest war horse in the land. And Jesus is like, oh, don't worry about that. I'm good. I've, I've already reserved the smallest donkey you'll be able to find. It's like King Charles riding into Buckingham Palace, not in a gold carriage, but on a tricycle. It's laughable. It's unbecoming of the dignity of a king. 
We should also notice how carefully Jesus takes his cues from God's word. He picks an unridden donkey for his grand entrance. Why? Because that's what the scriptures prescribed. And this wasn't a one-off thing. His whole life, if you think about the sweep of the life of Jesus Christ, it was all oriented around the word of God. When he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he doesn't resort to incantation or ingenuity. He goes to Deuteronomy. In Mark 12, the very next chapter, as we'll see, he's going to say to the Pharisees, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures. Even when he's suffocating to death on a Roman cross, Jesus is going to be quoting the Bible. Why should you trust the Bible? Why should you believe that the biblical documents are historically reliable and worthy of you staking your life on? Well, there are actually many good reasons. Uh, I could give a lecture about that. This is not a lecture about that. There are many good reasons, but I'll go ahead and just give you the ultimate one. The ultimate reason you should trust the Bible is because Jesus did. And when a man predicts, as a general rule of life, when a man predicts his death and resurrection and then pulls it off, we should be slow to disagree with him. This means, friend, that in the end, you cannot follow Jesus. Hear me, you cannot follow Jesus without adopting his loyalty to the Bible. He endorsed the Old Testament and authorized the New. Every single word. In fact, in Mark 12, I keep referencing Mark 12. We're going to see some cool stuff in that chapter. But in Mark 12, we're going to see that sometimes Jesus' appeals to Scripture, like when he's making an argument, his authoritative appeals to Scripture can hinge on a single word. Mark 12, 37, or even the tense of a verb, Mark 12, 27. And this high view of Scripture was not, was not just some academic theory. This wasn't just an abstract doctrine for Jesus. He relied on biblical promises when life was hardest. Was it easy for him to do this? Was it easy for him to keep trusting in God's word in the wilderness temptation, in the garden of Gethsemane? No, he was starving. He was sweating blood. But brothers and sisters, a high view of the Bible, a high view of the Bible involves not just quoting it when it's convenient, but submitting to it when it's not. Otherwise, otherwise, if we don't trust the authority of the scriptures, you know what's going to happen? If we as individual Christians or as a church, if we don't lean on the authority of the scriptures, we will just become slaves to whatever sounds right. We're going to be in perpetual danger of fashioning our own God who conveniently, it turns out, only says things we want to hear. And before we know it, we'll no longer be listening to a word from outside ourselves, a word from another world. We'll no longer be listening to the Lord of heaven and earth, but to a mere cosmic echo of ourselves. Everything in the life of Jesus, including right here at the start of his final week, 
is in accordance with the Scriptures. A calculated plan. Point two, a celebrated king. A celebrated king. Verse seven, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So all of a sudden, as Jesus is riding into the city, a a crowd, likely a crowd of of disciples. So, So you have the 12 inner circle, the the apostles, but then you have a wider group of even hundreds of people who were at this point at the end of his earthly ministry following him from place to place. And they perhaps are starting to think as they witness this scene of the prophecies of the scrolls of Genesis and Zechariah, right? Could could this be it? Could, Could this be him? Voices begin to shout, Hosanna, save us. Save us. Save us. They're speaking better than they know. They can't yet see that the salvation they most need is not political, but spiritual. They, they need rescue. One-way, unilateral rescue. Not ultimately from the oppression of Rome, but from the oppression of their own sin. I also think it's interesting that the people are shouting, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. See that in verse 10? The coming kingdom of our father David right on the heels of the previous scene with Bartimaeus. Remember the blind beggar who had the spiritual insight to shout, have mercy on me, son of David. In other words, I imagine Mark reporting on the triumphal entry with a smile. Bartimaeus was right. See the man on the donkey? Yeah, he comes from the line of Judah and David. This Davidic backdrop, that is with the backdrop of King David and the promises associated with him, this Davidic backdrop in Mark 11 comes, I think, from at least a couple places in the book of Psalms. Listen, for example, you don't have to turn there, just listen, for example, to what David himself had written a thousand years earlier in Psalm 24, as you imagine Jesus entering Jerusalem. Psalm 24, starting at verse 8, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. And I want you to see the next one. Turn to Psalm 118. Turn to Psalm 118. This should not be difficult to find. Psalms is the biggest book in the Bible, right in the middle. Psalm 118, starting in verse 19. Psalm 118, 19. 
Open for me the gates of the righteous. There's that gate language again. We just heard it in Psalm 24.9. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You thought I was done referencing Mark 12? I'm not because this is going to be directly quoted in Mark 12:10. Psalm 118:23. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. In other words, Hosanna, Lord, grant us success. And then we hear what the crowd directly quotes in Mark eleven nine: 9. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is good and he has made his light shine on us with bows in hand. Join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Why palm branches in Mark 11? Perhaps you've wondered that before. Because of Psalm 118.27. And perhaps because they're also thinking of other clusters of promises like Psalm 96. That the trees of the forest will sing for joy and all creation will rejoice before the Lord when he comes. Or Isaiah 55, Lord, the mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. So what we're hearing as Jesus enters the gates of Jerusalem is the sound of biblical promises getting fulfilled. An exalted, ecstatic view of the kingdom of God coming to renew the earth. Yes, the people here in Mark 11 can't see that far. They're speaking far better than they know. But the hoopla is not inappropriate. It's a fitting welcome, a fitting ceremonious welcome for a king. But again, and here's the tension in the story, Jesus is not the kind of king they're wanting. He's always doing this kind of thing, defying our categorizations, bursting the banks of our expectations, overflowing, spilling out with what we don't associate with royalty, what we don't associate with kings, and that's humility. As one commentator put it, only in God's upside-down kingdom, only in God's upside-down kingdom do messiahs ride donkeys and masters wash feet. Which means, friends, things are not always as they appear. That's one of the biggest takeaways from this story. Beware of evaluating things, life, people, based on mere appearances. Beware, if you're not yet following Jesus, of judging Jesus or his church based on mere appearances. Because in this world, weakness will often look like strength and strength like weakness. The triumphal entry is a stark reminder. The triumphal entry is a stark reminder that the experience of being a Christian will not always feel or look 
triumphant. Sometimes it'll be confusing. Sometimes it'll feel like all you're doing is staring at the back of a donkey because that's what the one you follow has chosen to ride. Oh, River River City, let's, let's not become, let's never become enamored and enchanted by the pomp and circumstance of mere appearances. Let's be a church that fosters, continues to prayerfully foster gospel humility, a culture of gospel humility and deliberate simplicity because we serve a God who looks not at the outward appearance but at the heart. That's what he's after and we don't want anything else to get in the way. We can also learn something, I think, from Jesus's attitude as he's approaching the city. Do you remember how the book of Jonah ends? Remember the book of Jonah? It ends with the prophet looking at Nineveh from a distance, feeling sorry for himself and seething with self-righteous anger. In Luke's account of the triumphal entry in Luke 19, you know what he tells us? He says that as Jesus approached and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. Jonah looks on a lost city and it makes him sulk. Jesus looks on a lost city and it makes him sob. Jonah was hoping for the people's condemnation, but Jesus was riding in to accomplish their salvation. Jonah watches and waits, watches and waits, watches and waits for his enemies to be punished. But Jesus comes to himself be punished for his enemies. In just five short days, in just five short days from now, he will be hanging in the place of sinners on a Gentile cross. And you know who he will not be talking like? Jonah. He will not be saying, Father, destroy them for they are worthless, but Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. No wonder Jesus could point to himself and say, something greater than Jonah is here. I mean, if you saw a man sitting on a donkey crying, you probably wouldn't immediately think, wow, strength, dignity, masculinity. You'd probably think the opposite. But that speaks to our own warped understanding of what true manhood looks like. A real man doesn't act like Jonah. A real man doesn't thump his chest, judging others from a distance. A real man is soft-hearted and broken-hearted, who sees divine image-bearers far from God and weeps because he cares for them. All of this, I think, constitutes a fresh call for us as his followers to be marked by surprising humility. Jesus' humility in this passage is surprising. They're expecting a war horse. Instead, they get a little donkey. And our humility 
should have a bit of a jarring, surprising effect as the world watches us, as we've said so many times before, race to the back of the line. And to the degree this kind of countercultural, confident meekness, no showmanship, no bravado, as this comes to characterize us, we will be giving people a glimpse of the rightful king, even if it isn't exactly the kind of king they're looking for. Oh, friends, the world has enough chest-thumping people. Just turn on cable news, turn on talk radio, scroll social media. The world is not lacking for chest-thumping people, even chest-thumping Christians. What there are not enough of is weeping ones. Verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. When Mark says he looked around at everything, he's not using a verb for sightseeing. It's a word that suggests an authoritative survey, a commanding survey of a scene. In other words, Jesus isn't just scoping things out. He's sizing things up. He's a king inspecting how things in his house have been handled in his absence. But then the story suddenly ends. Abruptly, anticlimactically. And once again, it's because Jesus is behaving differently than we would. I mean, if this story were made up by first century people, much less people later than that, if this story were made up even by contemporaries of the historical Jesus, I just don't think verse 11 would read the way it does. It's not very good storytelling. I mean, we've gone from Jesus receiving lofty, celebratory shouts of acclamation to, I'll just come back tomorrow. The son of David doesn't operate according to our calendars or to our expectations or to our preferences. He operates according to his divine blueprint for what is best. He'll return to the temple tomorrow, but his mission for today is done. And that mission has not been to sneak into the city incognito, but to ride in publicly, publicly as a humble king bringing peace. The great Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, put it like this, Quote, let us observe how public our Lord purposefully made the last act of his life. He came to Jerusalem to die and desired that all Jerusalem should know it. When he taught the deep things of the Spirit, he often spoke to none but his apostles. When he delivered his parables, he often addressed none but a multitude of poor and ignorant Galileans. When he worked his miracles, he was generally at Capernaum. But when the time came that he should die, he made a public entry in Jerusalem. He drew the attention of rulers and priests and elders and scribes and Greeks and Romans. He knew the most wonderful event that ever happened in this world was about to take place. The eternal Son of God was about to suffer in the stead of sinful men. He therefore ordered it so that his death was eminently a public death. In other words, Jesus has willfully, willingly reached the point of no return. 
There's no going back now. Things will take their course in his final week according to that divine blueprint, according to the architect's plan. Well, in conclusion, the next time in Mark's gospel, a crowd will gather. They're going to again be shouting in unison. But this time, crucify him. Crucify him. But even though no voice will any longer be saying, Hosanna, save us, that's precisely what he will be doing. You see, the triumphal entry occurred on a very specific day in the Jewish calendar. Did you know this? The triumphal entry occurred not on a random day. Jerusalem was swelling with people there for the Passover feast when Jewish families remembered God's one-way rescue from Egypt. How? Through the blood of a lamb and of all days of the year. Talk about a calculated plan. Of all days of the year for Jesus to ride into the city, he chooses Lamb Selection Day. It's like he's saying, pick me. Pick me as your Passover lamb without blemish. When Julius Caesar entered Rome triumphantly, he went to the temple of the pagan god Jupiter to offer sacrifices. But Jesus, when he enters Jerusalem, he does so to become the sacrifice for the sins of the world. And the great clue hidden in plain sight that his victory will be different than any others, that his kingship will be different than any others, is that he's not rolling in on a golden chariot carried by stallions. He's rolling in on a little unimpressive colt. Friend, if you have still not welcomed Jesus into your life, not as the king you want him to be, but as the king he is, the humble, saving king he is. Today's your chance before it's too late. Because listen to me, just because he didn't ride a war horse 2,000 years ago doesn't mean he never will. Listen to how your Bible ends. The Apostle John writes in Revelation 19, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Oh friend, that day is coming, which means the clock is ticking. Bow to the king in repentance. Shout to him in faith. Say to him, Hosanna, save me. 
save me from my sin. Jesus, I trust that you are the Lamb of God who came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life, your unblemished life as a ransom for many. I believe you lived and died and rose for me. I receive you for who you are, for who you are, and I'm willing to follow wherever you lead. Let's pray. Father God, if there is anyone here who has not yet humbled themselves to embrace the humble king, we pray that that miracle would occur this morning, that you would tenderize and soften their heart to see the horror of their rebellion and their need for mercy from your hand. And Lord, we praise you that this mercy is free for the taking. No matter who we are or what we've done or what kind of life we've lived, we can receive you as the king you are, which is the king we need. We pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.